Dave Pryor. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. Today, I have Braden Cundiff with me. Braden, thanks for taking time out of your morning. Yeah, no worries, Dave. Thanks for having me. Uh, Braden is the director of, I'm going to make sure I get this right, director of Product and Platform International at McGraw-Hill. Yep. Yep, what does that sure. mean? <laughs> uh, it probably changes weekly, but uh, <laughs> right now it means uh, supporting different regions on uh, digital product development, which also includes either internal or external uh, platform delivery. Okay. So at McGraw-Hill Education, I, I had done some work for them a long time ago, just to make sure it's still sort of in that same vein, what, what mm-hmm. we were working on were products that like universities were using to provide online education for students and things like that. Yep. Yeah. That's, uh, let's say the main source of delivery. We pivoted a little bit more recently um, and it depends on each region to um, you know, a B2C model. Um, we had you know a lot of different com- you know, competition and kind of that B2B uh, process. And as you had different little competitors popping up. So we've had to, uh, uh, figure out different ways to connect to the customer beyond just them being an institution. Um, okay. The benefits of you having you know, students in an institution, um, you'd actually be selling, you know, you know, potentially upselling platforms, you know, to those students via the teachers, right? They might want an adaptive assessment instead of just the book. And that would be a decision the teachers would make. And that was the, you know, the higher ed model. Um, you know, as you have students either transitioning to, you know, digital learning or, you know, looking for supplemental learning, you move into more of that B2C model and trying to figure out, okay, how do you directly reach these students? And then how do you also, you know, what's that instruction look like and how is it different versus the in-classroom model, which is still very much the bread and butter. Um, yeah. It probably is up to you know, 90%, right? It's still the significant you know, portion. It's, um, you know, where we focus on, but there are other channels and opportunities, which um, in today's world, we've kind of started looking more, yeah, so that's one of the things that I wanted to ask about was I in the tools that I'm using, I find that everywhere I look, I see tools that almost get there, but there's never like everything in one place. I mean, you must be getting a lot more demand for from businesses for this kind of stuff now. Yeah, and it's uh, a lot of configurability. And so um, we made we made the mistake trying to service too much configurability, I'd say, maybe even like three years ago before any of this happened that, you know, we said, okay, what platform do you have? We'll figure out a way to plug into it. And, you know, what we found is by spreading almost too thin across so many LMSs, you're just only halfway there, right, for a lot of them. So um, that's a problem that you think you see a lot of other, you know, digital companies get into as well, where you'd have a university who uses X platform, right? And they say, hey, you need to plug into our platform in order to make it um, you know, work for our system. And a startup can do that, that specific university, it might work really well, but then that same startup or that same tool, you know, not always a startup, but this work in a yes. different platform for you know, the university, and then it's only halfway there. So that's something that we kind of had to discover as we tried to um, really embrace these uh, global IMS standards um, okay. and try to figure out you know, how to plug in. So. That's how you get to that halfway point that you were, you know, kind of referring to. So, is your role you're more like a product owner then? Mm-hmm. Would that be the parallel? Yeah, there's um, a product owner and trying to kind of lead these um, what I would say very print centric or it's still very print centric regions, you know, around the world to just figuring out okay, what does digital mean to them in their space, and you know, digital in Latin America means something very different than digital in the Middle East, and so it's. 
what products make sense for them. So sometimes it might not be a, a digital product at the time, right? It might be, you know, you're still a, a print market and a print-based customer, um, you know, and you just don't need this at this point. Here's a free, you know, access to a mobile app if you need it, but this product isn't the one that you really need right now, right? Or this isn't the right product offer. And then with that, there's also the, the platform aspect of it from, um, you know, just working in the digital product group you know, for four years prior for moving over to the product side, uh, you know, kind of understanding how our platforms work and how, you know, how we can and cannot interoperate with certain systems lends me to also give platform advice. All right. So this is not where I was planning on going with these questions, but I would like to go in a direction we're totally unprepared for just because of the stuff you just said, because this is a really, uh, I think there's a lot that we could go into here, but there's two things I want to ask about. Um, In the capacity of product owner, on some level, I'm assuming that you're having to make choices or you and other people that you work with are having to make choices about, yes, we could potentially try to serve every possible person that walked through the door in every country on the earth but we have to pick the battles that we're going to fight. How do you, or, or can you comment on how you make those decisions, whether it's you or a group of other people, how that ties back to company strategy, um, like, mm-hmm. like how you make sure that you're in alignment with the rest of the organization when you make those choices? Yeah, um, it's really about kind of where we see that market at, uh, at that point. So um, a good example for us would be a certain uh, region or a certain country in the Middle East um, who's been delivering print-based products of math and science textbooks in Arabic. So it's been a, a very large project for us for the last four or five years. And there's a lot involved with translating a math and science books from English into Arabic. It's just, it's a, it takes a long time to do. And now they're at that point where they're ready to make kind of their digital transformation step, right? They're ready to embrace it. Whereas in um, Mexico City, our biggest customer has been digital for the last five, six years. It's one of our biggest adopters of our uh, digital math uh, adaptive program. So it really depends on where those regions are in terms of their willingness to accept and kind of go on that journey with you from print to digital, because it's going to be new for them. And it's honestly new for a lot of the sales and marketing people in those regions who work for us. So it's, um, it's, basically kind of walking with them through that journey to figure out, are you ready for, you know, this adaptive math product or do you still, do you need a EPUB that delivers a quality digital presentation on a, you know, a smart board every single time, which is more important, right? I don't need all the bells and whistles because I just need it to work immediately. When I go in my classroom, I turn on the computer, boom, you know, there's my, uh, my content ready to teach the class versus another customer who has kind of developed, and is ready to um, take on this, this digital journey. So it really depends on the region. And okay. first off, figuring out who internally on your team is prepared to tell that story because I've seen you know, some really good products end up dying on the vine because the marketing folks or the sales folks haven't been involved enough um, to really understand how to take the customer from their, where they are in the print world into this digital world or help them start to transition into it which leads to those new products. So, And I'm assuming that it, in every region, the way that they teach is different, the cultural practices are different, the marketing habits are different, like everything about that's going to be unique mm-hmm. all across the globe, right? Yeah, you'll, you'll see some trends um, in you know, Spain and LATAM you know, markets. There might be some similarities 
just because of language um, and some of the culture. But yeah, it is different, um, and it's different for for each region depending on kind of what those other competitors look like and where they they've exploited it and how we can kind of fit into it. So yeah, it's always a from my perspective, you know, that's always one of the challenges is sometimes you have to to push back on the regions when they say, hey, you know, I'm ready for you know, this new digital experience, right? Give us the most, you know, up-to-date adaptive tool you have. And we have to look at it and, you know, and push back and say, you know, you're just, you guys aren't ready for this. It's going to cause more issues for us down the road, trying to support this and kind of limp it along, right? For you to have this newest experience right now, that's a nice shiny object, but really your market's telling you they don't need that yet. You just, you know, want to start pushing to it. So it's a, um, it's a balancing act between are they, you know, are they ready? Um, you know, to kind of take advantage of this product or do they need to kind of stay where they're at and internally figure out how to get that product to market? So it's an interesting challenge depending on each region. And I know trying to circle back to some of the tools, but, you know, some of the tools that we use right now. We'll get there. Don't go there yet. You just gave me another layup I want to respond to. <laughs> All right. Fair away. So, so, I mean, you're making this like really easy mm. for me. So um, the other thing that I was going to ask you about was, Something that, that comes up in every product owner class that I teach, which is people come in and they say, I don't know how to say no. I struggle with saying no. You're talking about telling customers who are like, here's my money, build me the thing. And you're saying, you're not ready for the thing. Um, how, do you, how did you develop comfort with, uh, do you have comfort with saying no? Did you, how did you develop that? And, and what, do you, what kind of things do you need to have in your back pocket when you're having those conversations where you're basically disappointing somebody? Um, it's always, it's always still difficult. Uh, I think what has made it easier to say no, there wasn't really, I think any magic bullet. It's just the experience of having created a digital product in, in a, within a business strategy that was geared on moving a large customer base from print to digital very quickly and being part of, you know, building a, an ELL product to try and help to do that. And, having gone into these regions and, you know, seen places like Guadalajara, Mexico or Delhi in India and, and seeing what their classrooms are like and, and just wondering, okay, why are we pushing UK based or US based or EMEA based? We're creating these really cool digital products, but then when we get, you know, boots on the ground and we look at what they're doing, is that investment really worth it, you know, to right now to push towards these markets when really there isn't this massive change that we expected? Yeah. So not to say that certain markets didn't grab a hold of it, right? And we're still seeing that. It's a very, education's a very slow, like it's like molasses in terms of changing. And, and even now, right? It's still going to, yeah. I bet you're not going to see this massive, massive change that you know, maybe people on the outside of education are expecting. I think you'll see a lot of, of normalcy kind of, you know, stay with that because, you know, varying different factors. But being able to kind of look at, all right, we had these early adopters and that was three years ago and I'm still directly support, you know, supporting these guys in yeah. you know, Latin America. And it's still you know, 20,000 know, students or whatnot in the big scheme of things. That's a very you know, tiny number. But for me, you know, it's still like 20,000 people you're trying to you know, help with support and you're supporting a region. So it's the long tail of not having said no um, and that experience that leads me to be able to say this to customers now and say, hey, look, I've done this before. I know where our platforms are at. If we're not saying no to money if they want to, they really want to yeah. spend it. But here's really what you're going to get to. Um, and you know, that's, I think it's part of kind of being honest about what your own platform can do. And you might lose an opportunity or two, but 
if you're looking at the plant costs and the time that you might have spent to try and make that work, you know it couldn't have worked, and then having to say no later, it makes it a lot easier decision up front to just say, hey, you know, here's what we can do. If that other group really thinks they can do that, you know, okay, that, that seems a little aggressive, you know, from what we've seen. And then usually it seems like some of those customers end up cutting back yeah. <laughs> six months later where they're like, well, they said they could do it. They got us close, but we'll take, you know, we'll take what we can get. Almost, well, and right? then when they come back, they trust you even more. Yeah. Cause they know they're like, oh, well, they, these people won't over promise. So it's, I think it's having that experience of saying, yeah, we can do this. Right. And that was, you know, the 25 year old version of myself, right. Going, yeah. All right. I can do this. I can, that, you know, we can give you anything, right. We can build it. And we did build it. We had some really great team members and, uh, we had just applied a lot of the agile principles in McGraw Hills. So we were two or three years into that journey. Um, so you're really kind of starting to see some results and you've moved beyond that training phase and people kind of figuring out themselves, right? You, I wasn't the, the agile guru anymore. It was really more on the PMO side, making things work. So we were in a good spot in terms of development. It's just that the the markets you know, weren't ready for it. Our marketing teams had somewhat been involved, but they didn't feel ownership of that product. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we pushed it on them regardless. And we were basically telling our customers, hey, you know, you don't need print. We'll give you almost in a lot of ways, we'll give you the print for free. You just have to pay for the digital. And that just disrupted so many different things about a major publishing model, especially distributors, things like that, yeah. having stock, you know, just the whole system. We tried to, to shock it into a digital world because we thought that, you know, that age was coming and it had reverberating effects. So if we had said maybe no, even to some of the things that, that I had tried to apply, even uh, potentially uh, un- unknown consequences, right. Of getting people to be, to develop these digital products in a good way. I think that almost we got ahead of our, you know, we got over our skis in terms yeah. of getting all of these people who had been doing the same job for you know, two decades, right. If they're, they've been in that region, they've been selling it, they know how to sell it. Um, and they, they didn't know how to say no to us in a lot of ways, or they weren't given the, um, they weren't given the opportunity to, so yeah. even though they didn't say another case, we're kind of on the marketing side or the product owner in some ways, you know, how we're working with the marketing team. If they had just really said no to us directly, it would have made a big difference because they said yes, but they didn't go to those customers and say, you know, Hey, use this new digital product. Right. So they were saying right. no without saying no, which created a bigger problem. So I think experience is how I learned that. And okay. then you tell the customer things of <laughs> not to that in-depth of a story, but just give them examples of, you know, hey, if this is, I think it's a lot of it comes down to just honesty about where you are and you need to understand your own tools and your own platform um, and be able to speak to it when they have questions. So internal research, which is probably the least fun thing to do sometimes because you're just <laughs> digging through technical documents yeah. that aren't great. But understanding what you can do and then being able to say even more importantly what you can't do because i bet you every other conversation they're having is some team promising hey we can do this we can do this if you go into it it'll just kind of shock them a little bit to say hey we can't do this yeah and then they're like okay well what can you do so instead of you pushing here's what we can't do what you know what do you need based on what we can't do and it, it phrases the conversation a little bit differently yeah, I think that that getting to that point where you're com- confident and comfortable with saying like, "Here's the stuff that you know we can totally crush this. This other stuff, this is not gonna. This is not something we want to take on because it's not worth the risk." Or like you said, because if you have integrity, the long tail of you supporting it is just going to be 
something you're going to get beat over the head with for forever. Yep. To, to, to get to the point where you can say no because of those reasons, I think, um, is a really big sign of maturity. And I don't feel like there's any way to like circumvent that. I mean, you just have to go through making mm-hmm. those mistakes, unfortunately. Yeah. And maybe get lucky in that first product you put out works fantastic, has no issues and you know, you don't have to worry about <laughs> having to support it, but, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yes. it maybe, uh, maybe, maybe, yeah. right. Like those of us who haven't, it's, it's something that you're still passionate about too. Cause you've, you know, you've built it and you created it. So you know, you're, I'm still out here working globally and then also responding to yeah. Maria Santiago in Guadalajara, Mexico about yeah. not being able to see a page load correctly. So, um, yeah, just kind of be cautious about when you're saying yes, what you're really getting into. Um, you know, with those commitments, because you know, if you are, you know, if you go into those commitments, you need to be honest about those and stay accountable. So yeah. you know, you're kind of there for who knows, right? It's been <laughs> three and a half years now. I never expected. So it's, and it's not like it's going to go away. So, yeah. Cool. But, yeah. All right. So main topic now, <laughs> thank you yeah, for entertaining yeah. that. Um, the reason that, that, that Braden and I kind of set this up was I wanted to ask him some questions about delivery of online education because since we've moved into this virtual way of working where it's not just like a couple people are remote but the entire companies are remote um, whether it's you know collaboration or a meeting or you're running a training class um, everybody's struggling with it and there's tools that we're trying to use to make do stuff that maybe they weren't really designed to do um, and since this is an area where Braden has some expertise I was hoping Braden that you could provide some sort of insight into like what kind of Things are you seeing people do that you're like, yeah, that's not the way you do that. Yeah, it's, I think the biggest thing that I've seen, um, and it's probably a fault to even some of the the marketing and sales side or, or potentially even product, is we're trying to take what products that were designed to be led by instructors and giving them to students in kind of in a vacuum, right? And saying, hey, here's, a, here's some content, here's a product, here's a, a test make questions. You know, go work on it, right? right? And you know, there are there's a big difference between educational products that there should be. You know, I don't think we do. I don't think anybody does a great, great job of this unless you're very specific in your space. Um, is you know making a product that is student led, you know, that drives outcomes and reports that is noticeable for them in real time versus a teacher led content which. You, know, you might be looking at overall progress and you know comparing students, seeing where you menstruate. It's a very different experience. So, you know, a mistake that we make is thinking that the materials of the content we have or the presentation of that content will immediately translate over to using you know a Zoom tool. Right? Right. It it has to be uh, it has to be different. So, how do you when you work with with universities and things like that? Let's say that they've never done anything electronic. I mean, do you have? Mm-hmm guidance or any advice you could offer for people who are trying to move over to doing this stuff virtually and have it being engaging and not just, I'm going to read slides to you Mm -hmm. in zoom and then get you lost in mural or Miro or something like that. It takes a lot of upfront training on the tools that you're using. So the best presentations that I've seen is when you can tell someone's gone through and spent the time and understands, okay, Zoom can do X, Y, Z, right? It has this functionality or that functionality. And it's a very you know clean experience or when we're having a WebEx conversation, someone is easily throwing up a poll. You know, you have to be more prepared than you would probably even for an in-classroom because in classroom, you have that um, advantage of being able to be with the student, understanding the room, leading the direction of how you want that day to go. 
you don't have that in digital space. So it's, you know, I would argue it's even more difficult and you have to come into it more prepared. And part of that prep is understanding the tools that you're using and the best way to engage people with those tools. Um, So there's some, there's some training programs that we'll do with, uh, with professors or sit down, you know, we'll do it via zoom, right. And we'll walk through it. Okay. Here's how you use the, the share screen tool, right? Here's how you use chat. Here's how you you know, do record. So don't assume that maybe something you, you might assume on yourself that, Oh, I know how to do this. Take the time to go through and explain how to use each of these tools. If people are having issues, really being patient with building that knowledge before you even get into the content. And then after you've built that, then you can talk about, okay, how can we deliver it? Because a lot of these professors will have an idea of, you're smart people, right? They'll figure out how they're going to deliver this kind of the end of the day. We need to focus on making sure they understand how to use these tools appropriately and then which pieces of our content work best for their students in that scenario. So you might say, hey, don't send out a, a link to the ebook, or they might be doing that already in class. So we have to look for other ways that we can get creative. So it's you know, maybe assigning more... Uh, of our smart book assignments, there's like our adaptive assignments, right? So maybe you assign more of those that week, something of that nature, but really it does start with focus on the tool, do trainings on the tool and spend time with those professors, you know, making sure they understand it. And then following up again, you know, don't assume that one training is good enough. Do a second one where they might do like a, a sample walkthrough, right? Of yeah. how they might pres- you know, present a lesson or we have instructional designers that do that. So we'll do the tool training and then we'll also say, here's an example of how we would teach our content for the teachers. Okay. Yeah, it feels to me like a lot of people are getting lost in the tech. And I know that when I teach, I mean, like when, we've, when we taught together, um, mm-hmm. I know we did this and I've done this, you know, since then on my own is in person, if something's not working, I just change it in like mid-sentence. Like I just make the decision oh. and do it. But I can't do that in an electronic tool if I've got two other people helping me facilitate the class and none of us really knows the tool. Yep. Um, so the more that you get that depth, and for me, it's just like practice. It's going in and like, how do I do it? And making sure I can do it over and over again because in the heat of the moment, I'm going to forget some of that stuff if it's not like at a muscle memory point by then. Yeah, exactly. And it also has to have some level of interactivity. So it, it might be something as simple as, uh, you know, go to this link in the chat, right? Make sure that people aren't just staring at the screens and not another page, right? You need them, you know, following along or doing something, right? So that's, that's what I liked in that, uh, that Miro tool that you guys um, showcased in your last uh, scrum classes, you know, having some of that um, interoperability between folks and, you know, requiring them to move things on the, on the screen is really essential because otherwise you're just, you know, having a presentation for 30 minutes, right? Nobody's probably generally going to be, focused enough to really just sit there and and listen, right? So every course should have some level of interactivity where the user is interacting with either the screen or the keyboard or the mouse. There has, you know, there's something there because if you think about in a classroom, you're typing notes, right? You're writing with a pen. Now you're, it switches. So, you know, having some of that activity to register content in your mind, you know, different people learn different ways. And one of the learning methods is, writing things down, right? Or typing things or, or being engaged. So, you know, I'd say every, no more than every five minutes, you'd have some sort of engaging activity or some, even a link, right? Like, it's like, and that comes to being prepared, right? So, you know, all right, I'm going to this point now, everyone please do, you know, X, Y, Z, right? And, and kind of having that interactivity. And, you know, what we're in right now is, you know, a lot of these teachers either don't have the time to build all of this additional content, yeah. right? Or just, 
you know, or aren't willing to, you know, for other various reasons, right? I mean, this is, you know, to be honest, right? It'd be like asking to, you know, hey, do this more, but you're not getting paid more, right? But you need to adapt, right? So it's hard to blame them if they're like, well, this isn't my fault <laughs> that yeah. the world is sick. Like, now you're asking me to not only use these tools, but also I have to have prepared how to learn this new Zoom tool. Okay, now I have to learn how to keep my students interactive on a digital learning platform. I've never taught from a computer before. So you're, you're asking a lot from teachers. Well, and I think from, from a teaching perspective, the other thing that makes this so challenging, I mean, technology aside, is that <clears throat> I know there's some bits that I do when I'm teaching where it's like physical stuff or I'm moving around mm-hmm. the room and I'm using space. And now I'm front of, in front of a tiny little camera and they can't even see my hands. And like none of the physical stuff, it doesn't work. And even if, it, even if I was awesome at it, I can't tell because I can't register 30 faces in mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of little boxes <laughs> at one time. Um, so it, it's, I think one of the great things for, for educators on any level, if they're willing to, to take up the challenges, it forces you to completely redefine how you reach people. and it's hard, but you're going to grow. I mean, I'm, I know on the other side, it's going to be 10 times better than I was when it started. It's just going to be a pain in the ass to get there. Yeah. And we have to do our best to kind of, you know, as, as McGraw held try and provide this education material out to students as we can. You know, the reality is with a lot of these schools, they'll have some, you know, some sort of, you know, digital in the classroom, but in general, it's just you know, open air classrooms in Guadalajara. They're transitioning them to digital yeah, they might have a phone, but they probably pay for a data package, right? So them streaming on their phone or on the family computer, even if it is one or two, right? People are like, well, you know, they have access to the hardware, but it's the, you know, the cost of using that hardware that you yeah. find really kind of puts the clamps on it. The other problem we have is you provide them the digital downloadable piece internationally, and you find people who will actually buy the digital version or even just the print version at a lower cost point somewhere else and then resell it. So you have to also be careful of, okay, how much content do you allow people to download and access? Because once they download it, it's the wild, wild west. So it's, yeah. it's balancing the amount of access to content you know, or adaptive tools that you can get out. That's really what we've kind of transitioned to. And then also, what are those tools, how we were talking earlier, what are those tools that make sense for the scenario? You give them a tool and they might just think, okay, this is going to work great. Did we actually make it worse, right? Are they learning or is this just more confusing and we're taking up more time for the teachers than versus, hey, just go <laughs> go read your textbook, right? Yeah. Like, so um, I think when we get back to what tools we can use, I think it's using those tools, but let's not throw away, you know, all the things we know about teaching, right? We just have to be creative. Getting people to interact with their screen or, you know, doing something physical, you know, whatever that might be. Um, but it really does come down to, to the prep beforehand and making sure that you're ready to engage double or triple the time you would in the classroom because everyone's going to be distracted at home or doing whatever they're yeah. doing, even if they're on camera. So you have to be there to really kind of drive it. So it's, it's not easy. It's, you know, it's more work for sure. Yeah, and I think you just kind of hit on something that, that Jim had said to me, which I think was really, has been really important. He's kind of been pounding into me that I know what I'm doing and I have to trust my instincts because it's so easy to get swept up in in all this technology and all these things, it's like, Jesus, everything's wrong. (laughs) And so you, like, I feel like, Oh, I got to try this. I got to try that. No, you really don't have to do all that stuff. Just boil it down and make it as simple as possible for the information to get in somebody's head. Um, So what is, I one final question about this. Is there, (laughs) is there like a piece of advice? Like one thing that you would say to anybody who's 
kind of going through this, whether it's like in, you know, um, a K to 12 or university or a professional education, like people that are trying to make the switch now, one piece of advice you could offer all of them that would kind of raise their game or help them cope with this better. I'd almost break it up. And, you know, if we're looking at higher ed, uh, on that case, I'd say it'd be, you know, looking for other resources that, you know, we would have or that other people would have that are, you know, engaging the student creatively, right? Whatever that might be. Um, just finding some of those, you know, open educational resources that you probably already have access to and just keep on getting more content and more access because you know, at least at that, that age that, you know, in terms of them adapting or trying to figure out what they want to learn, right? It's really up to the students whether or not at that point they're going to want to take that content and go, right? We can all kind of get by if, if we need to. So from the higher ed side, our strategy has just been, what do you need access to, right? Here are all the tools kind of um, probably, you know, contradicting a little bit of the, uh, my statement earlier, but we are very much looking like, you know, Hey, here's the whole toolbox, right? Whatever it yeah. is, like we can hear it out, but you know, that's been the approach. Um, seems to have worked pretty well. We've seen some major usage jumps, um, in EMEA, especially okay. by just saying that just, um, you know, that's been our, my boss, our VP have, you know, what do you need? Right. And, um, in this case, you know, it seems to have worked because once by saying that it's kind of helped us kind of define it, right. I've turned into the person saying no. So anyway, for that group, it's, uh, that age group, I guess, or that market space, it's about, all right, give them everything, right. Give them access to as much as we can. Yeah. Um, and the K-12 side of things, you know, it's what I would do if I was a teacher right now, I'd figure out, okay, what are the, you know, if I was a U.S. teacher, right, what are the core objectives or my standards that I'm not going to hit this year, right, because I'm not going back to school? Um, and I would just focus on, all right, what am I doing next year? If this is, this continues, right, how can I deliver my my content digitally next year? It's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd, this year, I don't know, some schools might go back in session, but that's why I would start thinking about, okay, over this spring, over this session that I'm not, you know, I should be working, right? I should be in the class. It's what do I need to do and what tools can I use from my provider? So like from Cross Hill, what am I not using, right? Because yeah. a lot of folks regionally, they have access to both of them. They just don't use it, right? So they buy the book and they have access to, we have is Connect Ed. They just don't use it, right? Maybe they don't know how to. So if I was yeah. a teacher, I would be reaching out and figuring out what resources do I have? Because the the publishers or whoever you're working with is very much um, is very motivated, I'd say, right now, right, to help you figure out how to become a more digital savvy yeah. teacher. So if you know if there was ever a time to kind of look at that, right? Because these sales guys they can't go out to the schools right now; they can't go visit people in person. Um, so you reaching out to those reps. Um, you know, you'll get some attention right now to figure out what do you have. And if you don't have a tool, um, I bet you, you can get one <laughs> probably for free from a lot of these folks that say, Hey, I need to use this next year. So yeah. I would look at what I already have and what those partnerships, if they don't have that, then I'd ask some questions about, okay, then I'd go to the open education resources, but don't go that route immediately. Cause there is just so much content and you can point to LinkedIn or anywhere, right. And say, Hey, go learn about this or, um, uh, lynda.com, right? If you want to go figure yeah. stuff out, go read this book. Are they actually going to learn? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. So that's what I would say from a K-12 side. And I guess wrap that up is look at who's providing content to your institution right now. It's usually one of the big companies and what free resources you know, they have available. Try and leverage those and, and plan for next semester to be 
a digital classroom again. <laughs> it's probably the probably one you're be. prepared to deal with. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, yeah, it makes sense. And then you're there, you're ready, you know, you're not going to be as stressed and you know, you're kind of, yeah. it takes some research to figure out what tools would work best to kind of engage students. But again, in that space, just, I would reach out to the people that already provide our content okay. on the higher ed side. But where are those, uh, those startups, right. That exist that are really focused on, you know, adaptive calculus, student led development, right. Or, Hey, go use, uh, you know, Babel if you're in like a Spanish, you know, 201 or something. You know, I would probably point students to kind of all different types of resources to figure out what works best for them. Okay. Um, as well as, you know, all the resources that you have already, right? Like here it is, go for it. Look internally, but don't be afraid to look at those external sources. Cool. And what if they want to get in touch with you with questions? Um, yeah, they can uh, just send it to my Gmail account. So it's B R A. C-U-N-D-I at gmail.com. Okay, and I'll make sure to include that uh, in the show notes. Dude, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking time out with this and, and entertaining my questions, especially the ones that we didn't prepare for. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> it was fun. Cool. Thanks, man. Yeah. Have a good one. 